0: Julie hey Lisa how are you I'm doing well how are you
1: I'm doing well it's the last week of school for our kids which is pretty crazy that we're ending the school year this way but as they say it is
0: what it is it it is it's a it's you know it's like an exciting time that's really interesting to navigate because we've never done the end of the school year this year this way Okay, so my I've got you know two of mine are moving up to high school so they had their uh kind of graduation ceremony or moving up ceremony last night and that normally would have obviously been in the school and uh and it was done on on zoom last night very very well and it was a really nice a, a nice ceremony and my kids actually agree they liked it better being at home because they didn't have to get dressed up and go go sit through a whole ceremony in in, in an auditorium so they didn't they didn't mind it and we had a little special dinner beforehand and and it was fun, uh, but it's just this new, navigating this, this new way of, of celebrating milestones like this. It's been interesting.
1: For sure, neither of my kids are moving up schools this year, but I did have one mess up today if I could share. So we got this note from the school, from um, Ella's middle school yesterday that said we're going to do scheduled pickups for their locker supplies and art, art projects. So if your name starts with S through whatever, please comment this time with a sign indicating your name and your grade so I read it quickly last night and because I'm still in like that pandemic
2: birthday party parade graduation parade when it said bring a sign in my head I thought like big poster board so I yelled at Ella I was like hey there's a note I got from your school I'm not (laughs) sure if you got it I said but you need to make a poster with your first and last name and your grade. And again, I was really tired. I said, and you know, it'd be really nice. I mean, you don't have to do this, but it would be so nice if you put on it. Thank you, teacher. Thank you, teachers, right.
0: <laughs> so- They mean like she... a little sign for your window so they know which stuff to bring you, right? <laughs> yes.
2: So she doesn't get the email. I only get it. And so she makes like a huge poster from our poster board in the garage, brings this big poster. Uh, Darren drives her because we were recording our podcast interviews. This all happened a few hours ago when we were speaking to our guest. And she gets up in the (laughs) carpool line or whatever, the drive-through line, and she holds up this giant sign. And Darren said the teachers were like, wow, that's a big sign. I'm such I am well <laughs> was like, thank you teachers, happy birthday or whatever it said. So she came home and she was, she was a little annoyed with me to say the least My seventh I grader.
0: That's our new normal now though. That's what we think of it's like, you know, it's a, it's a parade and make a sign. <laughs> Exactly. That was a very reasonable interpretation of that. Sure it was. I'm just, I just,
2: I'm just an idiot, but it was, it was a funny moment. So I had to share. So Lisa, you posted
1: something yesterday um, on social media, and I wanted to just talk about it here. Why don't you tell everyone what, what you posted yesterday and what conversation transpired as a result. Yeah
0: I posted it was an article we posted to our Facebook page too it was an article about uh, heading back to the gym after we are you know, as we open up a little bit more and as most people know I, I teach cycling classes I teach a lot of cycling classes before COVID I was think I was teaching nine per week so I spent a lot of time in cycle studios which I love I miss it so much and I really like I really miss that interaction with people even when Peloton came out which I'd love Peloton is great. Like I always said, that wouldn't be me. Like I like to be in a studio with people. So I really love it. And I I miss everybody. But, um, you know, after our podcast with Dr. Ander, um, I really was thinking, we talked about the, the risk factors being, you know, indoors, in closed space with heavy breathing, whether that's singing or panting or yelling or cheering, that those are kind of the the big risk factors. And I thought to myself, well, that's everything. A cycle studio is a small room, everybody's close together. We're working out really hard for typically an hour, most of my classes are 45 minutes to an hour. Um, You know, ventilation is not always, there usually aren't windows to open in the classroom. So I just thought that's kind of a perfect storm for when we're hearing that that's sort of, that those are high risk factors, and then um, uh, contact tracing out of was it South Korea? I think was uh, you know showed that a yes. huge, uh, one of the spread was in it from a, a Zumba class, and um, you know just thinking on a couple of levels. First of all, as as an instructor who teaches nine classes, if I'm exposed to COVID and happen to contract it myself, and then spreading it to nine classes of, of people, which, you know, can have anywhere from 10 to 40 or 50, probably won't have that now, but, you know, could have a good number of people in the class and, um, you know, protecting myself and my kids and, and my parents and people that, that we are, you know, not super close. We're still social distancing, but, uh, you know, I don't want to expose just a lot of thoughts going through my head of how are how are my fellow instructors or people who really love their group exercise classes, how are how are they thinking through this? And what are they thinking about mitigating factors when they go back into uh, into the studio? And and that's becoming an issue for us now because our state is now moving into a new phase, and that will include based on our governor's guidelines for the state, which can be different from our county, but um the, the more broad guidelines are that fitness indoor gyms can reopen with some capacity restrictions. Um, so I know that it's coming down the, the, the pike that at some point um, the gyms are going to reopen and we're going to get back into the gym. So it's been hard for me to visualize what, that's gonna, what is that going to look like? What is our new normal going to look like? I, I don't know any instructors in other states that have opened up yet. So I haven't been able to talk to anybody about, you know how is it going for you? Do you feel comfortable? Do you, what, what precautions are being put in place? Um, where I work, where I teach, I know for a fact that there are very, very stringent guidelines that are, are now being put in place for, for cleaning and for sanitizing and for social distancing too. So class sizes are being cut very, very um, dramatically and everything that can be done is being done for sure. I just wonder inherently, can you do everything that you need to do to make that environment safe? So I posted the article to my personal page just to get the kind of a pulse on what people are thinking both in our area and outside of our area of of what are you know what's going through your mind and and what are you going to do to make sure that you and the people that you teach in your classes are safe or if you're somebody who goes to classes what would make you feel safe and it was a really I thought it was a good candid conversation and we had I had responses from all ends of the spectrum I had people saying, yep, I'm, I'm not going to go back to teaching in, a, in an enclosed studio. I'll teach outside. I'll do it through Zoom, but I'm not going to go back until we have a scene. And then on the very other end of the spectrum where people are saying, I'm ready to go back right now. And um, one of the instructors that I adore that I work with said, I'll lick the floor. Like I, I'm that confident. Like I don't, it doesn't, doesn't bother me. So really the whole spectrum. And, and for me, it was just helpful to help me think through everything. So I'm still definitely, um, I'm, 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 uh, I don't know what the best word is for it. I'm not, you know, I want to go back. I'm, I'm a little wouldn't even say conflicted. I'm just definitely, I'm cautious, and just trying to figure out how to do this and make, and you know, our job is promoting health and fitness, I and mean, we do that. You and I do that. I do that as an instructor. We're there to help make people's lives healthier, and how do you reconcile that with being in an environment that may not be the safest? And, and, and also, you know, who's going to come back? Are we going to have big group exercise or big demand for group exercise classes? So just something that I'm thinking through and um, you know, really at the end of the day, I'm probably going to go back and teach. I, I need to, for a lot of different reasons and um, I love it. And I just want to make sure I, I do it in the right way and that I work with the people who, um, are the coordinators in, in our the different places I teach to figure out how can we make it um, make it the safest environment. So definitely uh, something that's on my mind and I think just not knowing it's, a, it's just like before when we kind of went into this quarantine we didn't know what it was going to look like and now that we've settled in we're getting our bearings and we're figuring out how to make it work. It's the same thing how is it going to look like when we come out of it and how do we get our bearings and how do we find that kind of happy medium of balancing uh, the risk and the and and the reward, so
1: to speak. Yeah, I wish there were an answer and I think you're smart to be cautious and and listen to all of the different responses with an open mind and understanding that there is no right answer. Um, But I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's hard to reconcile our primary goal is to keep people healthy and fit. And so teaching in an environment that may cause risks to people's health is not fulfilling that goal. So figuring out how to optimize the, the safety of the environment, while that's not your job, it's it inevitably you have to make that assessment because nobody's done this before. So we don't have definitive answers. So we'll keep talking about this. Consider-
0: yeah, practical considerations too. Like, look, if we can move all the bikes outside places, that would be a great idea, but maybe that's not, it's not so practical and there are a lot of bikes or even moving the bikes around isn't good for the bikes or there isn't space, so, um, so again, working within the constraints of, of practicality, too. So.
1: For sure. And, you know, um, I was just going to say, we put out a call also today on our Facebook page. We want um, local, but actually anywhere of uh, – strength trainers to know that there's lots of people interested in one-on-one strength training sessions in person. Um, So if people are able to pivot and do those outside and are willing to meet with clients outside one-on-one. Or over Zoom. Yeah, over Zoom.
0: Yeah,
1: Yeah. so um, we have a lot A lot of people that are doing zoom but you know there is something to be said about in person to have someone really look at your form one on one. So we hope that anyone who hasn't seen that yet head over to our Facebook page and Mention what you're doing because we know there's plenty of people out there that are looking for that specific service. Um, so Changing topic, I just wanted to um, talk a little bit about some of the running news this week. And one story that really um, was uplifting to me was what happened at Brown University. Brown University um, announced last week that they were um, turning some of their sports into club sports, including the track team, which is insane because, I mean, that is a very – well-known team, it's not like it was faltering in any way, and it was an effort to, um, it was an effort to, I guess, optimize, what, what were the words the university used, like inclusion and diversity, but it certainly did the opposite, because the track team is diverse in and of itself, and it would have caused a lot of students to transfer, and I guess Brown alumni joined together along with many outspoken members of the track team who went on podcasts such as the Ramley Runner, wrote editorial letters, wrote op-ed pieces, and collectively the Brown community along with alumni were able to um, uh, convince Brown University to change its mind. And now the track team is back. And I just think that that's just an amazing testament to what people and slash the running community can do when people join together to support a cause, and it's something we're seeing a lot lately. How the running community is doing things to channel change, and um, I just, I just thought that was just something of good news
0: this week, which we don't see a lot of. It is, and for the university to listen too, and not just, um, you know, entrench themselves in the decision that was made, but to really listen and and uh, take action. So that's that's great. Definitely an uplifting Absolutely. story. Wow.
1: So let's talk for a minute, and we'll delve deeper into this um, in another episode, but just for a minute, why don't you talk about the news about Boston that we learned this week when they were um, allowing us to take the refund? Yep.
0: Yeah, we've just started getting a little bit more, as the BAA had promised when the uh, virtual, the switch to the virtual race was announced, more information coming out about registration about about 2020. And, um, and registration for 2021, which like you said, is still still developing and we'll talk more about that on a future podcast. But this week we all received an email with the option to request a refund and requesting the refund will not affect your um, ability to register for next year. I mean, you'll still have to go through the registration process and will also not affect your ability to, sorry, um... my dogs. <laughs> seems to be coming by outside. <laughs> all uh, right uh, and it will also not affect your this real life of podcasters when you're when you're quarantined at home um <laughs> but uh it also will not affect your ability to participate in the virtual race so really you know, a lot of people were questioning they're like okay well what's the downside to asking for a refund and shouldn't everyone ask for a refund and really that's obviously the BAA is I think extremely generous because there are very few race organizations I think that would offer just a straight out here's your money back you can still run our virtual race you can still register for next year but you know separately for next year you can still um there's no really adverse uh adverse effect to to asking for a refund and kudos to the baa especially because registering for boston is not inexpensive and a lot of people could use that, that 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 money back now so there really is no downside to it it's just a generous offer by the baa i think the um thought is that if you can, if you don't need that money back and you're, you're so inclined that you can not request a refund and it will stay with the BAA, which clearly can, can use those. But I think what people outside the running community and maybe even inside the running community don't recognize is that so many of the expenses of a race are incurred way before the race doesn't, you know, just because the race doesn't happen, doesn't mean the expenses weren't incurred. So lots of expenses and, and What's really interesting to me is that you can get a refund and you can still get your shirt and your medal and your your packet. So that's an expense itself. So that's sort of like a gift to runners if you've requested a refund and you're still going to end up getting something of value. So I think that's really, uh, really generous. Um, So, again, you know, there is no downside to asking for. It's not going to adversely affect any of the runners. Uh, But if you don't need to request it, it'll it'll stay with the BAA.
1: Yeah, so two things. I think the BAA, it would have been better if they had given an option to donate your money so that it could have been tax deductible. Like where there was something where they gave you that option where you can make a tax deductible donation to the BAA or to a charity of your choice that works with the BAA. Um, That would have been really nice. So I think some people are taking the refund and then turning around and donating it, which I think is really nice too. And um, whatever one decides to do, I, I agree with you, it's extremely generous of them to issue a refund. And I, we also read an article that interpreted uh, what the refund and, and 2021 is going to look like, and we believe, and of course nothing's definite until they issue um, the 2021 registration rollout, that if you age up, then you can use the your time um, of your age now. So for some people who may not have qualified for Boston within the time gap, um, one minute and thirty-nine seconds previously, because it was within their age group, but then you know they turn an, into a new age group, then all of a sudden they're um, they have a, a wider gap, and
0: there will right. be so it's people. not that they didn't qualify. It's it's not that they didn't qualify. Yeah. It's that they didn't make the cut. So they but they, didn't make, the they didn't make the cut because they're, so for example, let's say you're 39 years old and your margin was a minute and 10 seconds and you didn't get in because the cutoff was 130, whatever. And now you're going to be 40 for 2021. You get an extra I was, five or 10 minutes at that point. But so your buffer will be that much bigger. And then you may then have that opportunity to get in. So that, that'll be interesting to see how, but, that, how that plays out.
1: Doesn't it also include though people who didn't make the cut at all previously, whose time mate now? That's what I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that how I read it is that if you didn't qualify um, with your time in your old age group bracket, if you age up, you could
0: qualify now because of your oh, so time. So you missed from, your qualifying time yeah. by thirty seconds or two minutes or four minutes, and now that would have caught that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, personally, my my personal view is that I think that the ability to use your older times, which, so now the window for qualifying times will be twenty September 2018 through September 2020, so whenever we register this year, so that that ability to use those extended times from earlier um, should only be given to people who were registered for 2020, is what I think. I mean, I think that would seem fair, like if you were counting on being in 2020 because you were in and confirmed and you didn't get to go you should still be able to use that time to get into 2021 but if you weren't already in and you didn't think you were going to 2020 it just seems like i mean i'm, I'm all for more people coming to boston and if you you know ran that strong and you did run a qualifying time and but you know it's if you wouldn't have gotten in in 2020 it doesn't seem prudent <laughs> to then expand the field to all those people who didn't get in in 2020 but now would because they've aged up. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? Like, totally I mean? It totally makes that- it totally makes
1: sense. And, you know, we just don't know. And then there's a third layer to this, which is the field could be, of course, more expansive if, God willing, there's a vaccine and the BAA is able to expand it. Or if things are not back to quote unquote normal, the field could be really, really small and, and many people won't get it.
0: So yeah, I was thinking about that too. I was thinking, I'm wondering if if that's the case and we're in a position where we really still can't have big gatherings, it's not going to be a race of, I mean, normally it's 30, 31,000. It's not going to be a race of 20,000. It may not even be a race of 10,000. Like if you can't have, if you can't have 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000, what is it going to be a race of a thousand and then, or, you know, or 500 and then like how small will it have to be? I just don't think it's going to be 10,000 versus 30,000. I think it's going to be a hundred versus, you know, if you can't have 30,000, I think you're also not going to be able to have 10,000. So that, that would significantly, that would probably cut out. Maybe it would just be elites or something like that, but it would just cut out. I, I just, I don't think it's going to be a question of 20,000 versus 30,000. just
1: Totally, can't. totally agree. So this is a rabbit hole. We'll probably go on down in a few other episodes, but we just wanted to to kind of bring this to everyone's attention, that we've got our eye on this, and and we'll try and bring some people on the podcast soon to talk about it, and maybe provide some clarity, because I know we're a little bit confused ourselves, and we we are sure other people are as well.
0: Um, and we know so, there will be no clarity. There's, there there will be no clarity for for a while, just because just like we didn't know we'd have us, you know, we thought maybe we'd be there in September. As, as late as, you know, April, May, we were still thinking there. was right. a chance. So the clarity is very hard to come by. And I think that's why Dave McGilvery, when we first talked to Dave McGilvery, basically told us like, there, nobody can, can tell you what's going to happen because it changes every minute, every day, every week. And we're still in that.
1: Yeah. So our only clarity is that we don't have any clarity. That's what our, that's what we know for sure.
0: Not um, life in general right now, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh,
1: lastly, I just um, want to remind everyone, if you haven't yet, we are in round two of the Pandemic Improvement Project, and time mile times are due tomorrow, but you know what? We'll accept them on Saturday, too. So go out and run a mile as fast as you can, enter our Pandemic Improvement Project, and uh, all it takes is for you to run an improve time for us to be able to take the gap between your time and make a donation to Mana. We talked about this on our podcast before. It's a great way to stay motivated. Uh, check out our Facebook page for rules and really all you need to do is submit your mile time to Julie and Lisa at faster.com. We'll note it and then the people who win are the people that have the widest gap. So please participate. We had over 100 participants last time and we'd love to have just as much, if not more participation this time. And if you are inclined, please leave us a review. We have a few more buffs left. We've already mailed out Buffs this week. They look amazing. They're great for summer. They're wicking. And um, big shout out to our friend Cindy Wendt and her company API Source that provided them to us. They look great. So we have a few left. If you'd like to leave a review for us on iTunes, all you need to do is go to iTunes, go to our podcast page on iTunes, scroll to the bottom where it says reviews, hit Um, the stars, hopefully it's five, and write something about our podcast. That's how you leave a review that helps others find us. So Lisa, do you want to share who's coming up next on the show?
0: Yeah, we have a great uh, guest today and um, something that ties together so many of our issues that we're talking about now. We're talking about Boston, we're talking about um, women in sports, we're talking about um, systemic racism and, and These are all issues that are really timely right now, but they're also in a way timeless. And so we have Elise Hooper, who is an author, coming on next. She is releasing a book very soon called Fast Girls. It is a novel, but based on the true life stories of um, three women in particular who were on the 1936 women's Olympic team in the sport of athletics, which we now know as track and field. So um, Elise herself is a Boston Marathon finisher and an avid runner and athlete herself. And so it's really, um, I think you know her research and writing of this book is is informed and um and really benefits from her experience her experiences as a runner and, a, and as an athlete as well so she's great
1: yeah we're and really excited it is an awesome book so lisa i hope you have a great
0: week you too all right end talk of, to of you end later of school, end, of, end of all the routines of heading into <laughs> the summer of the unknown godspeed to
1: both of us. <laughs>
0: Have Maya. a great week, Lisa. Right, Bye. Bye.
1: We are really excited to announce that we have our first sponsor. R&J Sports, which is located in Maryland, is the first sponsor of the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Even though R N J Sports is a locally owned running store, they do ship nationwide and have a website from which you can order, rnjsports.com. If you go onto the website and purchase something over $100, just put in the code RFFFEATURES, F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S, and they'll throw in a free pair of feature socks with your purchase. You can also call the store at 301-881-0021 and over the phone they'll provide some terrific guidance on which shoes are right for your foot while it's not the same as a in-person fitting for many of us we can't do that yet so this is a great option in fact one of our runners in china recently contacted the store and they provided her with some great advice and she was able to get a replacement pair of shoes that's working for her very well so again, call r Sports at 301-881-0021. Let them know that you're with the Run Farther and Faster podcast. And if you make a purchase of over $100, they'll throw in a free pair of socks, or you can go on their website. Thanks so much, r for sponsoring our podcast. Hi, Elise Hooper. Welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. How are you today? Great. Thanks so
3: much for having me.
1: Well, thank you so much for coming. We saw a preview of your book um, on Goodreads where they were talking about new releases for the summer a few months ago. And when we saw your book, immediately we thought we had to have you on the podcast because not only is the book about running, but it's about strong female heroines. And it's just, it did not disappoint uh, why don't you go ahead before we start talking about the book specifically? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to write this book?
3: Sure. I have been a lifelong athlete. I actually grew up right outside of Boston, and as a kid, we'd line up in Wellesley usually to watch the Boston Marathon. Um, Joan Benoit was my hero back then. She was just Joan Benoit, not Joan Joan Benoit Samuelson, and. Um, I knew right then and there I wanted to run the marathon someday, and I played sports my entire life. I started off figure skating, wanted to be Peggy Fleming someday. I mean, I've got, <laughs> I have so many different sports fantasies. Like, where do we want to start? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, uh, and so, yeah, I did all these things. I um, continued to run, played field hockey through school, did all of it. And then I guess, um, I went, I moved to San Francisco at about in the 90s and did a lot of running there. That is a city, despite all its hills, it's sort of a real runner's city. And and that's really where I made a core group of friends running. My husband, he was my boyfriend at the time, but he's now my husband. We ran a Honolulu Marathon together and maybe something else, a lot of shorter races. So running was sort of what we did. Like we'd run and then we'd go have brunch somewhere, you know, back in the good old days when we met each other in person and hung out. And um, (laughs) I have two girls now. I live in Seattle and uh, my younger daughter is a swimmer and swimming is new to me. I love the water, but um, I've never, I mean, I see definitely a lot of parallels between running and swimming. And a few years ago, she had to pick a biography project for fourth grade and she picked Gertrude Ederly, which was someone I'd never heard of. Do you two know who she is? I mean...
1: I, I, she's the first woman who, um, swam across the English channel.
3: Correct. Yes. And so I, she, when, when my daughter was working on this project, it really started making me think about early pioneering women athletes, because I think we kind of associate title nine as being the beginning of women's participation, but it really, and if you're a Boston marathon fan, you know, it goes into the sixties, but it really goes a generation before that even. I I started digging around, and running was a world I was familiar with, and I found these women's stories of Betty Robinson, Louise Stokes, and Helen Stevens, and honestly, I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of any of these women. I mean, they were such trailblazers in their own way. They came to running for really different reasons, and they were so accomplished, and yet, I mean, we've heard of like Louis Zamperini and uh, Unbroken and the Boys in the Boat from the 1936 Olympics, Jesse Owens, but we really haven't heard uh, much about women. I was about to say anything, but we've heard a little. But so I really felt like this was a great project for me. It really spoke to so many of my interests and Um, It just it fit in so much of my personal life. I still I still run. I play competitive tennis like I loved channeling all of these sides of myself to run this book. I I really felt like my gym membership should be tax deductible because it was research. (laughs) So days I didn't feel like working out. I was like, this is research today. Research.
1: (laughs) What was harder for you uh, doing the research for this book or training for your athletic pursuits? Oh my gosh.
3: You know, to be honest, the two sort of go hand in hand because I have a lot of trouble sitting for long periods of time. And so I am someone who will kind of sit and work and then get up and go run or take my dog for a long walk or um, go play tennis or I'll do all these things. So writing and physical activity. Are actually weirdly very linked to me. Like I couldn't. I much as I love the idea of just like writing a book in a weekend, that could never be me because I have to get up and do some stuff in the meantime. And I also need that time to think. Um, you know, I, every time I'm out there, especially running, it's so meditative. I can really kind of think about. I have so many realizations, creative realizations, while I'm running. Um, and so, and I often think that distance running. And I would say the same thing about singles tenets now that I'm pretty into that too. You know, it's, it's like a long story, right? There are highs and lows and there are certain challenges and certain miles and at certain time points. And you kind of have to push through those, right? To get to the, the big finish. So I actually see a lot of parallels between the two. And, and so it's hard for me almost really to separate and say which is harder because they're, they're both hard in their own way. Yet the pacing is
0: very similar. How how long did it take you to from when you started the research to finish the book? How long did was that process for you since it obviously wasn't a weekend? Right.
3: Yeah, it was a couple of years. And and usually I um I start off doing some research. I kind of get to know what I'm writing about, and then I start writing and I just at points where I know I need some more research or something, I just put in X's because I don't want to lose the thread of the story. Because when you're researching history, you can learn so many interesting things. And sometimes those things want to hijack your story or like you you just feel like you have to put this in. And and so I try, I mean, in one of the many ways I try to mitigate that, I um, try to do a lot of just writing my story, and then I will go back and kind of fill in the details that are truly relevant to my story, not just things I think are cool and I want to include.
1: There seem to be a lot of rabbit holes in the stories of these three women. I, I mean, did you feel at times how lucky am I that I found these three women? Because even without running, because all three of them ran in the Olympics, but even without the running piece, they all had such interesting lives where they each had overcome tremendous obstacles. So um, can we start with, let's just start with um, you sharing for our listeners why they should read this book. So let's hear your elevator speech.
3: Well, my elevator speech is I feel like it's become my life's mission that these women become more household names. I just, I feel like there's a lot of inspiration to take from their journeys, even if you're not an athlete. I mean, I think that great sports stories actually have very little to do about sports. They're really a mirror of what happens in society and our own internal struggles. So, I think you could be a total couch potato and really get into this book. I don't think it should be limited just to uh, runners by any stretch. I think there's always so much to be learned from overcoming obstacles of all different kinds. So talk to
1: us first and tell us a little bit about the obstacles that Betty Robinson had to overcome and, and what her life was about to you after doing the research.
3: Sure. Well, to be honest, Betty is actually, if anything, sort of the golden girl of this story. I mean, all three of these women really, as I said earlier, come to running for different reasons. And Betty's was actually sort of accidental, really. She was a very sort of popular schoolgirl, um, very successful at everything she did. And as a 16-year-old, one day she's l- she's running for the bus and one of her coaches or one of her teachers sees her and truly thinks, gee whiz, like, she is really fast. I want to time her <laughs> the following day because, of course, that's what teachers, I think, think all the time when they see kids running. Um, but that is what he thought. And so sure enough, he times her and lo and behold, she really was fast. And so while her school, and actually Illinois had prohibited women from competing in athletic events, and I would have to double check the date, but maybe around 1906. So she legally wasn't really allowed to, but her her family really stuck by her. They kind of thought this was an amazing thing. And so um, they allowed her to race in a couple of AAU races. And 1928 was the first year women were invited to compete in the Olympics in track and field. And so, you know, now people train for years, decades to make an Olympic, you know, make get an Olympic spot. But but Betty, this was only one of her first few races. She she raced in maybe three races in Chicago, got the invitation to travel to Providence for the Olympic trials, wait, Providence or New, New, New Jersey. Gosh, okay. So, somewhere on the east coast and then she um she qualifies and she was a real underdog and she at 16 is put on a boat with all these other olympians and sails i mean which i think is an amazing thing in itself like her parents must have kind of been like goodbye good luck and there she gets on this ship um with now we know him as general macarthur but back at the time he was not that he was in charge of all these olympians and And she arrives in Amsterdam to find a city that is completely unprepared for the Olympics, like cows, uh, you know, um, wandering around the track, and the pool is leaking. In fact, the swimmers were told to train in the channel, you know, all these canals, and none of them wanted to do that. So a bunch of the women went off to Paris to shop for a weekend. (laughs) I mean, it was just, it was so unlike now what we think about the Olympics. Um, Yet it it comes together and Betty ended up really surprising everyone and she won a gold medal. So she was not only the first woman to compete in this newly inaugurated track and field, but she also then was the first American to win a gold medal in this at the tender age of 16. She comes home, fetid as kind of America's new great thing, and ticker tape parades the whole nine yards. And and a few years later, she is actually in, as she's preparing to compete again in the 1932 Olympics in Los Angeles, she's in a horrific plane crash and, and, and actually left for dead. I mean, a guy truly throws her into the back of his truck and takes her to a funeral home. And to be honest, I think he was even, because this is the Great Depression, hoping to kind of get maybe a little money for delivering a body instead thank god the sharp-eyed undertaker sees her chest moving and and they go about saving her and and she's told you know you'll be lucky to ever walk again much less run but but betty was a woman not to be deterred she did not take no for an answer and so against all odds she really fights her way back and she becomes again a racer in the 1936 olympics which in themselves, the 1936 Olympics are such a fascinating story because this is Hitler's big games where he's introducing the world to his National Socialist Party. So, so it's, it's all fascinating. But, but Betty, really, um, she, she's just such an amazing story of recovery, of adversity, of coming, of, you know, I think she really hadn't been tested almost until this moment of of having to travel across the world to become, you know, at 16, to race as an Olympian, and then to recover from this horrific accident.
1: And not to mention, she also between the Olympics was told on numerous occasions that she couldn't compete because the IOC kept changing the rules and saying that women shouldn't be allowed because it makes them look too masculine and causes their shoulders to be too broad and all of that stuff. I thought those letters that you um, put into the book, those those accurate letters reflective of the time were so fascinating that you kind of just peppered in the book to show that among all of their personal obstacles, they also had these, these obstacles of overcoming to, the uh, uncertainty of whether or not there will be Olympic Games to even attend, which of course unintentionally is a parallel to what's happening now.
3: Yes. I mean, yes to all of that. I I was amazed. I mean, yeah, people thought that women's uterus might fall out if they ran, um, there was a lot of talk about it somehow prompting like your mustache or beard to grow if you were running, I mean, that really persisted. <laughs> oh my goodness. And so, um, yeah, so I, I wrote a lot of those letters. I mean, I wrote all, of, everything in the book is my own creation because first of all, there are all these things about getting you know newspapers recreated for, there's a challenge to that. But I also, I felt like it was so important to include the language of how society was speaking about these women athletes at the time. So, I mean, they truly did refer to the buxom gal in lane three when um, writing in newspapers. So I read hundreds, I don't know, maybe thousands of newspaper stories to get a sense of language and tone, include all that. And then yes, there were all these systemic obstacles to these women. I mean, because some of these women looked tired at the end of the 800 meter, the event was dropped and actually almost women were almost canceled from the Olympics entirely after 1928, because, you know, who wants to see a tired woman that just was so depressing to people apparently. (laughs) And so, you know, these distance races, and I'm talking not even about real distance, but like the 800 meter wasn't reintroduced to the Olympics until, uh, sometime in the 1960s, I believe. So, I mean, um, you know, and, and it's crazy because the men, like, I mean, we all know that men collapsed during their first few marathons, like Olympic marathons, and yet no one talked about getting rid of that race. Um, so there was just a completely different standard applied to these women. There was a lot of pressure on them to be successful, because if they weren't, they were they were really the standards of their sex. And and there was kind of a fear, I think, and pressure on these women to to perform, because if they didn't what did that mean for, for the other women?
1: Talk to us a little bit also. I don't want to ignore um, Helen and Louise and a little bit about their obstacles, if you don't mind. I,
0: I want to add one thing. I just want to say it's interesting. We've talked to Catherine Switzer on our podcast before, and she said that same thing about when she ran, is that she wanted, you know, at a point she thought I should just drop out, or and, and then she thought, I can't, because if I drop out, that's what they're looking for. They're looking you know, yes. for an excuse.
3: Yes, I mean, I, I think these women did all feel a lot of pressure he- for on different points. Louise was from Malden, Massachusetts. In fact, she was known as the Malden Meteor eventually. Um, Malden is a suburb just north of Boston, and, and back then it was very rural. So when I went to my, although I grew up in that area, I hadn't been to Malden in recent times. So I, I did go back, um, let's see, I was there about a, a year ago, and I was able to find the old railroad tracks, which she trained on, um, and now they're kind of paved over in a strip mall. And I was able to find a statue that's now been erected in a hospital's, uh, a high school's courtyard dedicated to her. But Louise was a woman, a young girl, also a teenager, who um, she was w- one of a few black families in Malden, um, the granddaughter of slaves. And she was part of this actually very active black community in Malden. And she was able to, um, joint, she went to the local high school, she also was noted, people noticed that she was fast, she was invited to try out for this track club, which she did, and she just exceeded everyone's expectations, and so she had a really interesting journey because she initially qualifies for the Olympics in 1932 in Chicago, and that ended up being a really crazy Olympic trial, where it really showed, um, it depended really who you knew how you got into that sort of pool of Olympians. And so Louise, who and when she arrives in Chicago, immediately befriends another black girl who is there. Um, they realized that they don't have these advocates in their corner, like these loud coach male coaches who will argue on their behalf to make sure they they earn they get their spot each time. They truly earned their way through all the different heats. They ran fast enough, and yet sort of various other white women were being added here and there, even though they may have tripped or, and fallen and not even completed their heat or whatever, just because they had loud advocates for them. But Louise and Tidy really, really just fight their way through, all the way to the end, they make it to the finals, and that, that pool of uh, relay racers was only supposed to be six women. But as they traveled to Los Angeles, because there was sort of no gap, you, you qualified at the trials, and then they immediately... Sp- put these women on a train, sent them across the country to Los Angeles. More and more women kept being added to the pool. And, and this was a real gap as I was studying kind of what happened. I couldn't, I really wanted to try to figure out what happened. I mean, were there time discrepancies where Louise and Tidy really weren't fast enough or what really happened here? And I was able to find records of each heat's times for the Olympic trials in Chicago. And they were, they were right ahead of the mix. I mean, they should have been in this. And yet it's very clear that systemic racism and sexism, because I think the coaches honestly weren't taking any of these women all that seriously, no matter what their color was. But they had the added burden of being clearly outsiders. And so at every turn, they were, they were not included in things. In fact, when I looked at all the team photos that were taken in the backyard of the hotel in Los Angeles where all the women stayed, Louise and Tidy don't appear in any of them that I could find. And I think that every turn, things were made more difficult for them. And this was something that people were aware of, the NAACP sent a telegrams to the track coach saying, I wanna see all these women getting an equal shot at racing. But that telegram was clearly just shoved aside because Louise and Tidy, both are passed over. When they're in Los Angeles, they're ready, they're in their uniforms, neither of them gets picked to race in this final relay. And, and really with all the research I did, I, I think it really just came down to racism. And so, what's really amazing is that, I mean, one would think that would have been so discouraging and you would have felt so powerless that maybe that would be the end of your Olympic quest. I mean, I think that would be a really understandable thing to feel. And yet, neither woman succumbed to the disappointment they must, and, and anger they must have felt. And they dug in and they just kept training for 1936. And then the 1936 Olympics ends up being really crazy for all these women because. Um, after trials, no matter who had qualified, the US Olympic team announced that only, they were only gonna pay the way for, I think it was five women. All these other women had technically qualified, but there was no money in the budget for them. And so these women had to spend kind of a frantic few days calling home, sending telegrams, trying to raise funds. And Louise's church and community in Malden really came through for her. And they sent her the $500 she needed to travel to Berlin. And that was just such an amazing thing. Um, Betty ends up really having to kind of hustle to raise the money, all of these women did. But Louise in particular, I think, um, I think it really shows the hope that also must have rested on her from her community. And I think that was also probably an enormous pressure on her to feel like people during the 1930s had shelled out all this money to send her to Berlin. And yet in Berlin, she again experiences challenge, not only from within her team, but of course Hitler is overseeing all of this and he has made very clear his own racial programs. So all of the, I think there are about 20 African-American athletes who went to Berlin. All of them felt enormous pressure to both prove their merit not only to Hitler and the Nazis, but to their own country at home. Because many of these men and women, when they came home, especially the men who are racing for various universities, they actually couldn't race in all of their college races because of Jim Crow laws. And they weren't able to travel to some Schools and compete, so even if you had won a gold medal at the Olympics in Berlin, which several did, right, they came home and still couldn't race everywhere they should have been able to so so it's really I mean race played a huge role uh, in these Olympics in this period and and it wasn't just from Hitler, it was from our own country too and 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 this was all very eye opening to me as I was doing all this research that these women um they were sticking with a dream that felt so impossible, really, at the time. And yet they kept going. And I just found that so inspiring.
1: Absolutely. And, and I was really interested in the details that you provided with respect to the systemic racism, even within their own team, like they when they traveled, they were in a different part of the boat. And they had, they were representing their own country, yet they weren't even allowed to travel in the same type of circumstances. And I mean, that's just a minor detail, but it really struck me. It was coming internally as well as, as from other countries. And the fact that all of those pressures were on Louise and the others, yet they still were able to compete and run is truly a testament to their strength. And I, I very much hope that after people read this book, perhaps Louise's story will be elevated because she did, she did have that double burden that the other two women didn't have, and I had never heard of, I had never heard of any of these women, but I mean, I think her voice is something that could easily be amplified after hearing, um, reading the story that you share about her.
3: Well, I, yeah, thank you. I mean, I hope so, too, because Louise was someone who was such a, a great racer, an amazing athlete, and yet, I mean, to reveal a little, twice she has passed over for the Olympics, um, clearly not because of her abilities. So yes, I, th- I hope that we recognize her as the Olympian really who should have been, right? But wasn't afforded the same uh, opportunities.
1: Um, so lastly, talk to us a little bit about Helen. Um, like the first page of the book, not giving anything away, she's in a horrific accident. So like her life already starts out just it's the pets. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Poor Helen. She was a real outcast from the beginning. She was tall. She was gangly. She had this birthmark on her forehead. Her father made it very clear from day one that he resented having a daughter. He, they lived on this rural farm in Fulton, Missouri. He needed boys because they were poor. He needed real raw strength, uh, to, to help on the farm which interestingly enough, Helen had. <laughs> she was big, she was strong. And so, yeah, Helen is in this childhood accident where um, she trips, <laughs> she's sort of playing, she's she's playing with her dog and she trips and hurts her throat. And while I think she always was going to have maybe a deeper voice, she then has a very deep husky voice, which is kind of just one more strike against her. But. She becomes kind of mesmerized by what's happening with the Olympics in 1928, 1932. She is the youngest of these Olympians. So in some ways she is um, able to capitalize on this path that that Betty, Louise and others have have started. Now, um, in real life, news wasn't what it was. They didn't have the internet. So I'm not fully sure how aware, I know she was very aware of the 1932 Olympics. She had pictures of Babe Dedrickson on her wall. I'm not quite sure. I mean, I took some fictional liberties of of, because I needed to connect, right? These three women's stories right from the outset where she is paying attention to the 1928 games. We do know that Helen was, while also an amazing athlete, she was also pretty studious and loved to read. And so I did not feel like it was a huge stretch that she was reading the newspaper in 1928. But I did take that leap myself. And so Helen, um, Throughout her school years, she is kind of an outsider, and outcast. She experiences several different occasions of sexual abuse. She is really a loner, although she didn't want to be. She was actually a real extrovert and people person, but she could never figure out her place. Well, all of this changes when Uh, a high school teacher spots her playing basketball for her church team. He was mesmerized by her athletic ability. I mean, you know you see it when you um, are standing on your kids' sort of sidelines and some kids just glow from the outset. They are sprinkled with that magical dust. Well, Well, Helen was one of those, and so like what had happened with Betty, he sets her up for a time trial, and she actually um, even just like in her school clothes, like which for her wasn't sort of dresses and fancy shoes like some of the other girls, I think she was wearing like overalls or something and work boots. She ties like the world sprint time for women. And this coach, and I think this is a this was something I loved about the story was there were men in the story who go out of their way to open opportunities up for women. And they don't do it for anything special other than that they appreciated the gifts that these women had. And they wanted to see them advance. Not for any other sort of self-promotion, but just they wanted to see better things happen to these girls. And this coach was a great example of that. I would say Betty's father was too. I mean, all of these women had somewhere in their lives a man who was willing to help them um, get through. And I just. I think there's something to that where we can really see these men didn't lose anything by by opening up opportunity for these women. Um, I I loved writing these characters as, and I think this is exactly what they were, were just people who wanted good things to happen to other people. They didn't feel possessive over their own advantages and their own privilege. And they opened up the doors for other people to participate. And, And this coach did that for Helen. He um, paid for her track shoes. He advanced her along in the local sort of Missouri racing scene, even when the principal superintendent weren't supporting her racing with the boys. People, again, thought it was unnatural that she was so fast. The fact that she was beating the boys had everyone worried. I mean, what, what were these boys supposed to think about their own masculinity if they were beaten by a girl? There were so many levels of this. And really, Helen's life transforms. In this race she does in 19, uh, ni- 1930s, before the 36 Olympics, she beats the world record holder in the 100-meter. Uh, I-, I think in the US, then, it would have been 100-yard. The Olympics is meter. but. Um, And overnight her life changes. She becomes the Fulton Flash. The media is obsessed with her. She really became one of America's big hopes for the 1936 Games. And I mean, all of the things that had been um, her disadvantages up to this point, her height, Um, she had a nine-foot-long stride when she ran, which is amazing to think about. All of these things suddenly came to her advantage. And so all of a sudden, the town, which had really treated her like an outcast all this time, suddenly there was Helen Stevens Day in Fulton, Missouri. I mean, there was a parade. All of a sudden, everyone was on board with Helen and wanted to see her succeed. And of course, I'm sure many of these people had only great intentions. But I always, in this book, did try to prove how once women were successful, it, everyone was on the bandwagon. Um, and so, so then Helen was one of the few American women who had her uh, passage paid to Berlin. I mean, people expected great things from her in Berlin, and she delivered. I mean, in fact, Hitler wanted to meet her and invites her away for a weekend. That's how impressive he found her. Yeah.
1: Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, I know in the book, she she had prepared for that meeting can you talk a little bit about how she prepared and, and what that was about and, and I have to ask is this accurate like this yes. part of it okay so yeah. tell the
3: story yeah. that's kind of I mean, amazing when fiction is I mean real life is stranger than fiction and and Helen Stevens story is certainly one of those where as I said she had read mine Kampf. she was pretty bookish. She was one of, I think, really the few athletes heading to Berlin who kind of understood what she was walking into. She'd been paying attention to the news. She knew what was happening in Germany. And she had some reservations, but she also felt like the best thing she could do was win and win decisively. And that would deal a blow to Hitler and um, his actually very favored women's relay team. And so Helen... um, she, after this race, I mean, Hitler actually in the beginning of these Olympics in Berlin had had sometimes interrupted the flow of the program wanting to meet certain athletes. And he then was told by the IOC, like, you can't do that. You're messing up our timing. I mean, it was one of the few times, right, that Hitler's told he can't do something. And so, but nevertheless, he was very set on meeting Helen. And so after she wins um, in her solo race, he... um demands a meeting and there was a lot of apprehension about this for, by Helen and her coach and um and so and it's all detailed I was able to read her handwritten diary of her time in Berlin when I went and visited her her archives in Missouri um, and she described yeah Hitler not only um wanting to meet her and she has him sign her autograph book but they have their photo taken the photographer who takes it is then beaten up in front of her. She's then essentially kind of felt up by Hitler and invited to go away to his like mountain retreat for the weekend, and, and which of course she said no. But I mean, as I was reading this, I could not believe that this had happened. And, <laughs> and I had never heard of this. And so, I mean, Helen then really for a variety of different reasons becomes even more set in, in seeing the women's US relay team be successful. Um, she was being accused of being a man out there. People were questioning her success. And so she really doubled down. She'd always been a loner and I think in many ways uh, aligning with a relay felt worrisome to her. But, but this was for me a really pivotal moment in her journey of where she kind of, she allows some other women to, um, she kind of puts her, her legacy on the line a little with these other women and, and they go for it. And, they, and even though they were underdogs, Uh, in this relay, they enter it. And um, of course, they end up seeing some success, I'll say. But, but, you know, Helen is such, she leaves such an interesting legacy, because her time in the uh, 100 meter sprint wasn't surpassed for another 20 years in the Olympics. Um, I will point out, of course, two Olympics were canceled because of World War Two. So we'll, but I think Helen would have kept competing, right? So, well, we just won't know ever what happened in there, but Helen could have had, I think, a much longer Olympic career had the Olympics not been canceled. And then Helen really was a lifelong athlete. She becomes the first woman, uh, owner and manager of a uh, semi-professional basketball team. She really was looking for a way to make sports her life at a time when, when there was very little opportunity for women. I mean, we'll, we see that even today, how women now are really struggling to end up in management, in coaching positions with professional teams and all. Helen was a trailblazer in this regard too. Um, She advocated for her friends from the 1936 Olympics till her dying day to get them spots in various halls of fame. I mean, Helen um, never stopped fighting for women's participation in sports and yet She is someone who I'm really, I'd be surprised if many of your listeners have heard of her before. And so I really just think we need to know more about these women, how how they have paved the way for the rest of us. Anytime we go out on a run and we're not made to feel weird running along a roadside, I honestly, I think we can connect it back to these women. They started this.
0: Can you talk about um, Helen and her interactions with Hitler. Where, where, what were your sources? Like, where were you getting this information? Were there diaries, or reports, or articles? Where Where were you finding this? Well, Helen did keep her
3: uh, a handwritten diary, so I was able to visit that when I went to Columbia uh, in Missouri. And I was able to also talk. Her biographer has been very generous with her time, and her biographer was actually friends with Helen. They were friends in Missouri, and so I was able to get also um, accounts of this through sh- uh, through her biographer. I also um, was, a- I mean, there's the photograph. The photograph exists even though the photographer was beat up after taking it. It briefly was a postcard in uh, Berlin and yet then mysteriously disappeared. Um, most likely because she rejected Hitler and he didn't want to document the moment. I mean, there are so many questions about that, but but the photo exists. Um, it exists at that in her collection in Missouri, um, and so so really that was my primary source, coming straight from her and and her account of what happened. Hitler never documented it, and and I don't think it really made it into any newspapers or anything although I'd have to double check that that photograph may have been re- reproduced in American photo uh American newspapers after its event that's fascinating I was- yeah and she's so matter of fact in her description of it in her journal I mean she it, she she kind of felt like she was going to meet him she just had this feeling that destiny was going to set them and and it delivered and I think she kind of couldn't believe that that this man, who she really was pretty knowledgeable about, was there in front of her.
1: It really is unbelievable. When you were writing this book, you said it took you a couple of years to write. So did you find it uncanny that while you were doing this process of researching women whose voices had not yet been heard, it was happening simultaneously as the Me Too movement in sports? Um, The Shalane Effect has happened over the past two years, along with an awakening of the underrepresentation representation of women coaches, as you briefly, as you mentioned previously, and then, of course, most recently, um, something we've known for quite some time, the lack of diversity and inclusion and running, and all of this has, has occurred during the time before your book has even been released. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean...
3: Boy, we are living during fascinating times right now. And, and, and I think really ever since 2016, we've seen so many of these events happen. So while I was hoping, of course, that the timing of the Olympics was going to help with this book, um, you know, history again is interfering now in the form of a global pandemic. I I feel very grateful to be living during a time where we are starting to see light shed into many of these um, practices that have gone really unchallenged for, I mean, we can say centuries, easily decades, clearly. Um, and so I, I'm i a bit speechless, honestly, that it's all kind of happening at the same time. I, I started this book really just, this is like my homage to my many Olympic dreams over the years and, and my love of sports. And and then it's just become so timely, I feel, with all of the current events happening around um, pay equality with participation with representation I mean there's so many things I mean where do we even start right now in the swirl of news um, that yeah I, I am both very hopeful that we continue with this because I think it is so important I mean I, I every time I go watch my kids participate in these things, I'm struck by the things that they're able to do without even kind of thinking twice about it. And I think, um, I hope that that continues and that our girls live such a different existence than anything we have. Because I, in many ways, consider myself very fortunate. I had access to high school teams, um, to good coaches. I had coaches always who supported me. I was never fortunately, in any abusive situations, but we know, if anything, that that's actually kind of the rare story these days. Um, And so I really hope that all of the, um, the, what we're seeing as far as exposing um, abuse and and dangerous practices in sports, uh, I really hope that that's leading to a new generation of, of participation, of equitable treatment, and of opportunity. We're all just silent thinking about that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Sorry, I was taking mine off mute. I didn't realize I was on mute. I I was gonna ask, you know, you mentioned you were really surprised when you saw kind of the systemic racism that in the effects. And what else is what else surprised you in your research and in writing the book? I
3: mean, this book just never failed to serve up surprises. I can definitely say that. And each woman's story was amazing to me. I mean, to be honest, like one part of this was just the, the plane crash and then recovery to a point where she could run again is mind-boggling to me in the, thir- in the 30s that this happened. And, and actually, um, Betty's daughter has told me that her mother's knee always clicked. Like she could hear the screws in it as she ran all in subsequent years. And I think that is amazing. Um, so there's that alone. But then I was just fascinated by these 1936 games, because there's so much there. And I hadn't realized really how active the boycott movement was in the days leading up to, to, in the months and the years leading up to these 1936 games. I mean, really, all American diplomats in Berlin were advising that we should not have participated in that. And yet FDR really ignored all of that, and and, and Avery Brundage. I mean, they sort of propelled us into these games, despite the um, expert advice being given by, by Americans in the field saying not to do this. And I think there's a really interesting thing to consider had the US not participated in those Olympics. And, and by the way, that vote was so close, it just came down to a couple of votes. Um, you know, Probably other countries wouldn't have participated. And so there is, I think, a really interesting thing to consider if Hitler hadn't been given this platform of these 1936 Olympics, could history have been different because not only was he presenting to the world, but he was also very much presenting to his own country of like, look at what is being heaped upon us. I think many of his own supporters may have lost heart in him had they seen and sort of cut off at the knees by the international community. So I think just the Olympics in themselves, I mean, I've done a lot of research now into the Olympics. And I mean, we still need more women uh, serving on the board of the IOC. I mean, women's participation in events is, is still not equal. Uh, there's still room in the Olympics to see improvement. But really, I think that these 1936 games, which are really what give birth to the modern Olympics as we know them, in the sense that many of the traditions and um, the pomp and circumstance that goes around the Olympics today, the torch relay, I mean, the torch relay is deeply rooted in Nazi ideology. So much of the thi- many of the things we love about the Olympics today, and we hold dear to our hearts, have kind of a very dark history. And so I found all of this very just fascinating. So, I mean, again, the surprises just kept coming, like in the form of these women and then and then the events and political climate of the time.
1: This has um, been such an interesting conversation and so timely because as much as we want to think of running as not inextric- inextricably linked to the rest of the world, sometimes it's unavoidable. And just like then and just like now, um, we're seeing a lot of connections. And uh, like you said earlier in the podcast, sports is a conduit to history. And certainly you've provided us with history that we did not yet know. And we hope that this opens the doors to readers to explore more and and maybe some younger readers who might want to dig into the research about these three inspiring women. So thank you so much.
3: (laughs) Thank you. I should also say, and boy, I should be prepared for this, a picture book just came out for young readers about Betty Robinson. I think oh. it just released on Tuesday. So, and I need that title off, off the top of my head. But um, so, so yes, these women, I mean, I, I I need to get my hands on a copy of this book because I think it could be a fun accompaniment to Fast Girls for, you know, the, the really little readers can, can learn more about the sort of start of these women through that book. But... Yes, I am so with you. I just hope we get more and more of these stories. Um, I had been writing about women artists up in my first two books, and and this book really opened up a whole new world to me. So thank you so much for having me. It's such a delight to speak with other runners. (laughs) And I'm just so happy to talk with you this morning.
1: Thank you, and one more question. Tell our us when your
3: book will be released and how we can find it. Thank you. Um, it's <laughs> being released on July seventh, um, and I will be doing. A, I mean, everything has gone online this year as far as book touring. So readers can find if they follow me on social media. I'm on everything: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. They can have access to the various events I'll be doing throughout the summer. Um, the book can be found anywhere books are sold. So I mean, of course, there are your big online retailers, I would also encourage people to support their local independent bookstores. Um, Local independent bookstores are always happy to take special orders if they don't have something in stock. There's also bookshop.org. There are so many places to buy books. And you know reading is something we can do when we're recovering from our runs and need to give our legs a break. There's something we can do while we're on the move with audiobooks. Uh, Fast Girls will be available on ebook trade paperback and audiobook so all of the options are there
1: (laughs) well fantastic thank you so much Elise for coming on the podcast and and sharing uh, a bit about the book and uh, for those who are listening that think we gave the book away not even close it's a terrific (laughs) read so thank you again for your time and we so appreciate you coming on today
3: Oh, thanks. It's been a real honor. And hopefully someday I'll be in DC. We will get out of our, and we will meet in person.
0: We would yeah. love that. At a race. Maybe we'll have a race again. You can come. Yeah. I, I probably can't keep up with you gals, but
3: <laughs> but yes, we will do something to honor our favorite women runners for sure.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Elise. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.